Hi, you're listening to the We Make Media Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Dara Cates. Today I'm here with Milena Drumeva, Assistant Professor of Communication and Glenn Fraser Endowed Professor in Sound Studies at Simon Fraser University, specializing in mobile technologies, sound studies, and multimodal ethnography with a long-standing interest in game culture and gender. Her current project is called Livable Soundscapes, and it explores best practices for soundscape design in cities and civic participation approaches to storytelling with sound. Milena has been working on sonification for public engagement since 2015, crossing over cultural studies of sound and data representation. So I've asked her to talk with me today about ways of hearing sound as media in our cha- and our changing relationship with sound as mediated by technology and visualized through data. Hi, Milena. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for thank you for chatting with me today. Um, I just find sound uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, so if, if if you could just for listeners like really quickly, just you know, what is this this difference uh, in your field about between like sonic, auditory, sound, acoustic? Like you know, are these all terms for saying the same thing? Or well, they re- they really are. I think they're kind of disciplinary specific. So. Auditory is a word that you tend to get in psychology and um, when we're talking about auditory perception, hmm. right? And it's, a, you know, it's in the realm of auditory versus visual, but it, it sort of implies perception. So it's more scientific, I would say. Hmm. Um, acoustic comes from this uh, tradition of acoustic, electroacoustic, sort of differentiating sound in terms of whether it's been mediated or recorded or not, whether it's like sort of original or recorded, but it's also used across, but a lot in media, a lot in media studies, acoustic. Hmm. And then sound and sonic, uh, honestly, I can't differentiate anything. I mean, I'm not one that, uh, that has identified with any particular language. Um, I don't find that to be, it, it's interesting the histories that these words have and where they come from, but I don't think there's distinctions that are so important that uh, they actually mean different things. I like using sonic, uh, like for talking about literacy, which is what you know we chatted about just now. Mm. I like the idea of sonic literacy. Schaefer calls uh, Schaefer has this term that he came up with called sonological competence, which is a little like over the top. Let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, sonological competence is not a term that you would know unless you you read that book. Uh, it did didn't take off exactly. Right. But I think he was trying to uh, invite a kind of scientific legitimacy to the idea of listening. Ah, okay, interesting. Thanks for that because I just yeah, just, just difficult to find um, the language that, in because you know for me sound is one fifth of what I've been doing for the last 15 years. It's a, and yeah, I just ha- I haven't been able to make the connections of other people who are exploring this in, in the same ways. Um, you mentioned uh, Murray Schaefer. Is that Murray Schaefer? Murray yeah. Schaefer, yeah. Who, who was, uh, you know, as part of the very rich history uh, at SFU. And, you know, SFU in general has a rich history of looking at sound through many lenses. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how Simon Fraser University and your own work explores ways of hearing and what are kind of the foundational concepts and inquiries there? If I can sum it up in some way, at least in the School of Communication. So I came in um, in 2016 uh, on the 
retirement of Professor Barry Truax, who was the successor, essentially, of Murray Schaefer. And Barry, um, Barry continued and, and established a very interesting framework where he brought together uh, kind of science and cultural studies uh, of sound. And he did that at a time where there really wasn't very much writing uh, on sound from a cultural perspective. I mean, Schaefer's work was really, really groundbreaking. It's been received so well globally. I mean, Schaefer is really big in Latin America, in Japan, uh, over the years as a music literacy educator, all of his materials on music literacy, as well as soundscape. Uh, but what Barry added was a kind of condensed science that helps to illuminate the cultural side of sound and vice versa. So uh, because he was in a school of communication, you know, we're there, we're interested in communication, we're interested in um, the social, we're interested in how technologies shape society, how they shape our cultural practices. And so that's what I've, I've continued in that trajectory. Um, and my work, as of more recently has been around um, urban design and urban politics and how soundscape is framed or not in urban development documents and in kind of general popular media discourse. Um, and not very much has changed since Schaefer's time. There's still a preoccupation with noise, but nothing concrete. And trying to work with the city and trying to work with a, an ar a local architecture company to create soundscape literacy and here i'll use the word soundscape mm. uh soundscape literacy for professionals and civic servants so not your general necessarily population but you know how because this architecture firm came to me and they said as architects like we'd love to incorporate sound but we have no idea where to start mm. so there's been a, a bit of a interruption in the flow of knowledge if you will like that um, everything that Schaefer came up with hasn't necessarily made its way to urban design, even though Schaefer was very interested in urban design and, mm. and in architects specifically. And what kind of things was he interested or, or what you're doing now in, in exploring? I, I, I think I get from what you're saying is that, you know, noise pollution, right, which seems like a very kind of uh, middle class or class concern, right, uh, in terms of like some people live in really loud places um, and that usually uh, the louder the place, uh, you know, usually the less affluent uh, the spot. Um, Absolutely. But uh, so what kind of things is, is, is he talking about in terms of what other kind of ways can we incorporate sound or, you know, or your, or your own observations like in our lived environment? I mean, Schaefer was and ha he has been criticized, you know, as a composer in a, you know, middle class white man. He, his concerns were very much around the sonic beautification of the city. You know, he was, this was a time of rapid industrialization in Vancouver. So, you know, it was a big uptick in the noise and the noise levels. And, uh, but he framed it in terms of balance. You know, he didn't want to say these sounds are bad, these sounds are good. So he said instead, there's mm. a balance that we're now missing. The sounds are masking each other. They're meshing in. We can't hear individual sounds. And it's, this is like an ecosystem. It's an ecological perspective. That's why it's called acoustic ecology. Yeah, he took an ecological perspective. And you can see how speaking of balance sort of helps to not create ideological uh, or, or normative 
conceptions of particular sounds. And yet, just the idea of having the right to quiet and beautiful sonic environments is still a very much a middle class ideal. Mm-hmm. That isn't happening in, I mean, I live in a mixed, uh, up in so-called up and coming area and it's mixed zoning, which basically means on one side of the street, you have residential zoning noise bylaws. And on the other side of the street, there's industrial buildings and breweries that operate 24 hours a day and industrial noise bylaws uh, allow a business to operate 24 hours a day with noise. Now, of course, the noise doesn't stop at their at its own side of the street. It floods. So mm. when you have these kinds of up and coming mixed zoning spaces in the city, they are very noisy. Right. There, there are definitely no class concerns and issues of mixed use. Yeah, it's interesting. You were just saying how how, how big he is in Latin America, uh, or how interesting the, the the study is because Latin America. My partner's from from Peru, and we we live there on and off, and it's very loud. <laughs> it's a very different sound thing, you know. Like he's always like, "Why are you whispering?" And I'm like, "Cause it's past eleven o'clock, and I'm Canadian." And he's like. This is like nobody, you know, do you hear like there's like dogs barking, people whistling instead of doorbells. There's people selling tamales, yeah. like you can, yeah, you yeah. Know, calling out the bus stuff. And he loves it. You know, can you speak a bit about how you have elaborated on that on that existing lens? Like what, you know, in in, in more recent uh, years, um, you know, built on the back of that 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 history there at SFU, but from a more geopolitical perspective in terms of uh, sound as, as media. Yeah, I mean, part of that is has been considering policy and in relation to um, kind of critical cultural issues in the city. Um, And that has led me to think a lot about a listening position because um, again, Schaefer is criticized for this idea that, you know, a balanced soundscape where sounds are not masking each other is sort of universally pleasing and it's, it should be the goal. Mm. But uh, a lot of groups recently have been saying exactly what you just said, which is, well, that's culturally specific. Like quietness is a value in your Western culture, not in other cultures that, you know, are then punished for being loud. Mm. Um, so I've moved more onto this idea of, of culturally appropriate sound design or culturally rich sound design. So I've been talking about that with, uh, yeah, with local architects and, and I hope to talk to the city, um, as well as um, this idea of who's, who's listening. You know, if we talk about soundscapes, um, I've been using this term that I really like, soundscapes of livability or livable soundscapes because livability is such a buzzword. And I'm not using it un- uncritically. I'm, I'm just using it because it's such a buzzword and it's nobody knows exactly what that means. And that's precisely it, like livable in what way and for whom. And so when we think about sound, it's like who's listening. So in my last project, we didn't quite accomplish this as you never do in academia exactly, but the idea was to collect a database of local specific sounds and then build listener positions uh, from the built compositions that uh, that demonstrate different listening positions. Like what would this kind of person hear or what would they pay attention to as opposed to another person in this neighborhood. So having that kind of locality, uh, locally specific character, but also a listener specific perspective. So I'm really interested in playing with, with representation, like playing with ways of 
representing different positionalities and different perspectives in a way that then can be circulated around. Like you can listen to uh, almost, you know, what this person pays attention to or what they hear. What, how does life sound mm. like for them? That kind of sounds, yeah, like a little bit what I explore with with, with children and, and youth in, in public schools, because we'll often do kind of field recordings or we'll, we'll talk before we go around about what are the sounds, you know, when we're not in that space and they can think of that, that, that you know, make them, you know, if we were to do like a sound portrait of a certain space, you know, like what would what would what would those sounds be? Um, and then we kind of go record them and kind of think about the space between how we remembered them, you know what I mean? Like how we, how we, how we filed them versus totally. yeah. what might, might actually be there in the moment. Can you speak a bit about the, the role that sound plays in culture and cultural production? And I, again, I mean it from a kind of a med- media literacy standpoint in the sense that in public schools where I work mostly, um, there's been a lot of media literacy curriculum since uh, 2006, which I recently learned through this podcast series is very much on the shoulders of Marshall McLuhan. Huh. But so we're looking at, so that's grown a lot from let's look at the cereal box to, you know, let's talk a little bit more about even including things like social media, um, though there's still a lot of, you know, not a lot of interest in, in exploring those things in public school or a lot of attitudes towards those those forms of media. But how can we include sound in it? It's like, how can we look at what information transfers through sound and how that affects like cultural production or like how we experience the world and why is it important? Well, it's very important. I mean, it's hugely sound is, is hugely important in media design and, uh, and so many things. I'm, I'm grateful for the existence of TikTok because there's so much to be said there about sound. I, I really, I would say that TikTok is primarily a sonic medium because you wouldn't think it at first because it's videos, but think for a moment how the videos are created. You start with the sound usually, and mm. it's the sound, it's the soundtrack, the little soundtrack that the one that circulates and then people create different videos based off of the soundtrack. So it's, it's really like the first medium where in, in popular engagement and, and not, you know, serious, uh, media production, but you know, just your everyday like engagement, we sync the visuals to the sound and not the other way around. Mm. It used to be that you would put together, you know, some little slideshow and whatever, and you'd start with your visuals and then you just select like a drop down menu of, you know, happy sound, sad sound, you know, very nice cool. guitar, like and and then you just add that on as a musical soundtrack. But but actually TikTok requires so much more choreographing of the sound. Um, that you start with to create like a good match with your visuals. And then the better the match, the more viral the video. And uh, I mean, it's it's kind of insane. I know that's not every TikTok, but a lot of TikTok, uh, a lot of kind of intertextual TikToks that speak to each other. And there's like a built up context, um, use the sound first. And so, yeah, I would say TikTok is a super, um, supersonic medium. And I would just bring that up to the attention of students. I mean, that's one very easy thing is they probably wouldn't think it. Mm. But, you know, when you're starting with the sound and then adding your in, imagining your own story playing mm-hmm. out, you're actually listening and syncing things up. So, like, let's do that, but more deliberately and with more thought. Mm. I mean, in university, we have the freedom. I know some colleagues have done assignments such as uh, uh, create a, a BuzzFeed listicles, whatever those are. I'm not up on everything, you know, but 
Uh, I have colleagues that are younger, a little bit more, <laughs> yeah. you know, hip. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, you know, create a meme. Um, mm. I mean, these are forms of semiotic shortcut type information that circulates as if we have a shared meaning, but we actually don't. Like, it's really interesting to stop and ask, why is this meme funny? Is it funny? Like, what are we laughing at exactly? What assumptions are built into it that supposedly create the humorousness of it? So some of that traditional kind of media literacy stuff of deconstructing or pulling them apart. You know, there's a form of theater where like they, I can't remember what that's called. Um, the people, the actors act up front and the people make the sound. It's a form of improv where it's kind of this dance back and forth. So the sound people, you know, so the people up front are kind of improving to yeah, reacting to yeah, the sound yeah, yeah. and then vice versa, right? It's this dance back and forth. Yeah. And often, you know, yeah, when I'm with students, I'll just talk to them about you know, sound stand-ins and that like, of course, they've seen alien movies or they've seen, you know, horror movies and Mm -hmm. nobody's actually being stabbed. And, you know, there's somebody in a sound booth with a watermelon wrapped with leather or whatever, you know. (laughs) Yeah, Foley Foley is great. Foley is a great tool. I'm teaching an audio um, production course right now and we do a lot of Foley. Mm. But I love that. I hadn't thought, I mean, TikTok is... uh, I don't think I've I don't think I've done one podcast without somebody mentioning TikTok um, and their and their love of it or like what it's bringing. Uh, um, but I love that. Yeah, that's so true. That's the it's the audio. That's it's like a scary love. Like I I love it, <laughs> but I'm so frightened mm. of it because it's, it's like an abyss that you can get sucked into. Right. I still haven't. Yeah, I haven't gone down there. But but it's starting to seep into other places. Right. So people will share one. Like, I've seen a lot of TikToks on Twitter. Yeah. People have shared a yeah. lot of TikToks with me in, like, Instagram messages. And I'm like, hey, are you on TikTok? You know, it's not as easy to share on other platforms, actually, because it's not a, it's not owned by... I mean, we also forget that political economy part, but, you know, t- Google owns YouTube and uh, Facebook owns Instagram. and uh, But TikTok is a Chinese company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot so, of drama about a lot of drama about that. They don't make it very easy to mm. share, actually. So people have to make you can find uh, TikTok compilations on YouTube, but somebody has to physically like make right, them. like record it and take it. But that's interesting. That's already interesting that it's at such a point, like a zeitgeist point, that people go through the trouble of that to get to get those links yep. out of there. <laughs> and I mean, Zuckerberg's a king of that too, right? That's an Instagram trick. Break all the links of the internet um, and uh, and make you stay inside his little, oh, totally. his little universe. Yeah. Social, social dilemma. <laughs> what is it? I feel like the social dilemma needs to be like a, like a show, TV show with six seasons. Because, I mean, there's just, you can't, you can't get enough of, like, you got to make your teen watch that over and over and over again. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many dilemmas and oh, new yeah. ones every day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so you've done some really great work looking at sound and audio in the context of gender and media representation. Um, you did a TED Talk about uh, about uh, the, the sounds of women in video games. There's been a lot of conversation about uh, the representation of women in video games. They look awful. They're very sexualized and all that. But that's not what I'm here to talk about today. I want to talk about how women sound in video games. Please stop! Please don't! What? No! How? This is wrong! (laughs) Yeah! 
similar to what we were talking about, just the way that it amplifies like visual meaning because we are very visual, yeah. visual beasts. The eyes come before, you know, the eyes are Trump ears. But uh, can you tell us a bit more about like what you observe there and, and, and why it matters as much as div- diversity mm-hmm. in media representations yeah. from the visual of the visual variety? Yeah, absolutely. So to me, when I think of sound in media, like the kind of media that we consume, like shows, movies, games, um, sound has such a, it, it's once again, to me, it's not that these are visual media so much as we think of them as visual media, but they're actually very, very sonic. And the sound does so much to um, convey a sense of authenticity and immersion. And I mean, if you, it, it, an easy experiment is if you just turn something on mute, it's just not the same. It's really not the same experience. And so in games, just like in cinema, sound provides that sense of uh, realism and immersion. And it's uh, a lot of people have written about, and, and I'm just having something come out, a publication very soon about that. It sound kind of fills in the gaps. So when you're playing a game, there's a lot of glitchiness in between, you know, movements and things, just because that's what a game is. You're you're going to a place and you're trying to jump, but you know, it's actually not an area you can jump on. So, you know, there's, there's that visual glitch, but the sound actually fills in the perceptual gaps because that character is still making sounds like, you know, <laughs> you know, trying to jump. And so it's, it's sort of, it smooths out yeah, the experience. It's and it smooths out the experience. And so it is really important. And I say in one paper that, um, the reason why I kind of fixated on these battle cries or not just battle cries, but vocalizations, any vocalizations is because when you're playing a game, that's actually 70% of your experience. Cause like most of the time you're not in combat necessarily. You're, you're just exploring the environment, trying to jump on things, trying to climb on things. And so that's what you're hearing a lot. And that is what you associate with the character. And it becomes part of your own like player avatar experience. And so it really is extremely important and of of note that these sounds are so uh, stereotypical, uh, kind of grotesquely hyper-realistic and very sexualized. So that's kind of where that came from for me. And and I've spoken with some voice actors and um, some people on the inside. And the, the sense I take from them is uh, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to differentiate. So they create archetypes like this is going to be the like low you know, husky voice, and this is going to be the high innocent girl voice. And so they overplay both of those you know, both of these kind of stereotypical extremes in order to differentiate voices. Mm. But until now, there hasn't been, um, I mean, there hasn't been really, no one has brought up, okay, but that's actually really stereotypical. We tend to focus on the visuals of female characters, but uh, but the sound is exactly the same. I mean, it's the equivalent of that bikini armor. Mm. And really all it takes is just some of some education, some literacy, some awareness. And uh, and now we see better games out there like Last of Us 2 or uh, Horizon Zero Dawn. We have some really good neutral voice acting, including um, vocalizations like they're not overly sexualized. They're not overly like 
feminized in a stereotypical way. Mm-hmm. So it can be done very easily. Right. So there. So, yeah, the excuse, I mean, is so so often from from cultural producers or visual artists or anybody who's 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 making representations and not thinking too, too deeply about it is <laughs> that, you know, yeah, it's being used for for effects, you know, to simplify information, to, you know, to amplify a certain, you know, thing of meaning like this is a woman. But uh, yeah, usually, uh, you know, one way to fix that is just to include other, listen to other, like my voice is very low. Um, so, you know, <laughs> what if, what if we just had, what if we saw a quote unquote female character or even a, a you know, gender non-binary character who made noises that sounded not like a typical woman? How would our brains handle that? You know, pretty easily. It's really pretty easily. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it would be reflect reality. You know, it's really it's not like... about our brains. It's, it's about I think they want to. They get trained that way. This is why formal education matters a lot. Mm. They get trained and they want to retain their training. They want to feel like, well, I I know walking into this job what to do. Now you're telling me this was all wrong and I need to do different things that I don't know about. How am I supposed to feel like a competent professional? Right. So I think part of that is 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 wanting to to retain that sense of competence. Right. Right. Yeah, of course. That makes sense. Yeah. To build on the skills that you've got for that industry and say, like, this is my ticket. This is how I know I'm doing a good interview or whatever. Right. I mean, it'd be interesting. Like, I'm sure you have, have you talked to them about like how they're directed in those moments? Because, of course, there's also the sexism within the production of someone going, no, can you make it a little bit more? Yeah. So that's really interesting. And I have talked to people about that because my assumption was also that they're being directed to do that. But actually, voice actors are um, have the same issue. You know, they get trained in a certain way. They get they train, they create a portfolio of different voices and those voices have to be very differentiated. Mm. And especially in the field of female voice actors actors um it's such a smaller field than male voice actors so what women have to do is have a very large repertoire of very different types of voices Mm. so it's actually them bringing that training in and thinking oh i'm gonna you know i'm really gonna exaggerate here i'm really gonna you know they're not necessarily being directed to do so Mm. that's interesting so that was an interesting twist yeah Mm -hmm. and i i don't have enough interview data to like claim this but but that was an interesting twist for me where i uh, it, it turned out that it's them bringing their own mm. training and i mean training vocal training think of it i mean if you if you train for you're doing podcasts but imagine if you're training for the radio to have like that radio voice like all of these broadcast forms come with really stereotypical performances and when we get and people get professionalized in that and once again they don't want to let go of that professionalization yeah, and there's a whole history. You talk a bit about it, I believe, in the TED Talks or something, but about the history um, of the technology as well, right? The same with uh, radio for so long. Um, the frequencies uh, were built around a, a balanced male voice. And, and just even the, the the content of shows being associated with the female voice, like uh, things like gossip and... Uh, and consumerism will have a female sound versus things like news and political commentary will have a male sound. So just even those kinds of typologies have been established long, long ago. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. I mean, that's such a great place to start in any kind of educational setting is just looking at those, even logging those for a week or turning the 
putting it on mute or uh, or vice versa, you know, turning the turning the image off and listening to the sound and, you know, yeah, or be, or or being asked to perform and vocalize, you know, like vocalize the sound, like what is the sound of, you know, like a person in distress, right? A person in distress and see how many times it comes out as a woman and child, you know, it's it's, it's totally. Uh, how is there, our relationship with sound uh, changing right now? Because both in our environment um, uh, and also just in our tech uh, mediated lives. I mean, I'll say the the really that's a very it's a very big question. I can go on and on and on, but um, I'll, I'll say the very obvious, which is I think there's a lot of stimulation. There's a lot of media. There's there always has been. So you know the way that I see our relationship, uh, especially technologically mediated relationship changing over time is just that we're, uh, we're retreating more and more and more into, you know, our sonic bubble. You know, we put on the headphones, we put on the earbuds and we're just kind of creating these mini private spheres because there isn't there very much privacy to be had. The pandemic has been a really interesting phenomenon for that because now you have like everybody trying to work or study or do stuff from home. And then how do you create private space? And and so a lot of that, I think, comes with technology. And, and I really see these trends in uh, the development, for instance, of uh, smart noise cancellation, transparency mode, uh, whatever other words, contextual. What are those things? What is smart? Yeah, those are those are basically uh, more granular levels of noise cancellation that are offered through like the AirPod Pods Pro, uh, some of the Bose noise canceling headphones. Mm -hmm. So you know they sort of claim to uh, um, we're gonna turn down that crying baby on the airplane, but. It's not exactly how sound works. You can't just like, you know, identify a sound and eliminate it. It's it just works on frequency ranges and, you know, mm. so. <laughs> right. You can block out a certain frequency and, ho and hope the baby stays in that frequency. Yeah. Yeah. You can hope the baby's in that range and then you can turn that down. And then transparency mode apparently is, uh, I don't own that technology, so haven't experienced it, but transparency mode is, it lets in sounds from the outside but while still optimizing your music listening experience right so kind of like for safety to ride your bike it's for, and, it's and... for safety but it's really bizarre so instead of you just kind of listening through your actual year it's using the three microphones that are embedded in, and listening to the outside and it's using those microphones to bring in that sound from the outside so you're actually not even it's recording sound from the outside or like rather get, getting it in live and playing it to you. So it's just like all these meta levels of mediation. Um, we're becoming very cyborg again in our relationship with sound. That's what I would <laughs> sum it up as. Right. Well, yeah, I was reading something fascinating the other day about uh, its use in XR and in, in like uh, augmented and virtual reality experiences. I know, you know, most people know smell is a really strong association with, with memory and in this case, they were using ultrasound to approximate the experience, you know, of, of something that, you know, couldn't be given full experience in a visual, in a, in a VR experience. So in this case, it was like a pro using ultrasound to approximate like water, like feeling water dropping on your skin, like you're standing in rain, which of course you're not. So, yeah, I mean, they're so interesting. I also saw that, uh, I think it's a, is it out of SFU? There's, there's research about the COVID, the uh, identifying 
using audio to identify COVID, uh, people who are COVID positive. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sound, things like ultrasound has been used for a while to, uh, to actually break down small bladder stones, like a blast of sound wave. I know mm. this has been used in medicine for a while. Instead of doing an operation, they blast kind of ultrasound and it can break up small bladder stones that is amazing yeah. yeah sound is amazing i feel like we're going into a period of you know and maybe yeah maybe yeah i don't know if the pandemic is bringing it more or less because it's true that you know podcasts and and putting the headphones on like that relationship with tuning out the world and the kind of podcast relationship with just like someone speaking directly like, yeah. to your inside your head, <laughs> like you know, like as opposed it's very to intimate. Yeah, it's extremely, extremely intimate medium. What, can you talk about the, the sound and data representation work that you're involved in and, and, and how it's uh yeah, how it's being used in, in the present, but but how where we're going with this in the future. Yeah, so if you like my research on uh, gender and battle cries, uh, you should listen to uh, my sonification of uh, a bunch of Twitter data of the Me Too movement, but sonified using battle cries. It's a link if there's a public link i'll include it oh show, yeah yeah absolutely well. yeah. uh i i haven't done enough to really uh I, I actually have a piece coming out and sounding out the sounding out blog but the sounding out blog uh put a hold on um publication just just to give everyone relief from um covid stress and pandemic uh workload so i don't know when they're coming back online but like i have a piece that should be coming out there and the links will be embedded and everything but i'll send you a link it's on soundcloud um, so sonification I've always been interested in. I did son a sonification project essentially in my master's at SFU. Um, and sonification is um, a process of translating data into sound and really translating information into the audible spectrum, translating it into, um, because there's another term called audification, which is translating the numbers directly into uh, corresponding frequencies of sound, but obviously that would sound very chaotic and not necessarily make any sense. So sonification involves a purposeful mapping between the information and the sound. So, you know, if, if, the, if the numbers are going up, how should that be represented sonically? Should it be by pitch going up? Should it be by volume going up? Should it be by some other parameter? And so exploring that is really interesting. It involves a lot of perceptual science, obviously. But I think the way that we listen, the way that we hear is so culturally specific. So I feel like what I've always been interested in bringing to the sonification community is that cultural aspect. Like, and I've been interested in using really different sounds uh, than the standard ones used in sonification, which are usually pitch. We're most sensitive to pitch. So, you know, but you'll have something that's like, Ooh, and it's not very interesting, 
so yeah I'm, I'm this is kind of a playful really project i'm not interested in becoming a science certification anything so it's just for fun like what it would sound like if you heard instances of me too tweets but each instance was a female battle cry so is this like the kind of uh, i mean other than the kind of self a self-expressive like exploration kind of aspect that you that you just mentioned though you said you were not an artist but you know everybody is um <laughs> well, that sounds creative. very much like art creative um, <laughs> let's say <laughs> yeah there you go same thing yeah uh creative practice um um is this kind of like I'm trying to wrap my head around exactly what you're even talking about, which is like, you know, I think of like all this, there's so much visualization of voice, of vocal stuff now, right? I mean, like, you know, you can little content pieces online um you can get like you know uh, a print of of you know the sound of your child saying i love you or like you know you can there's like all kinds of visualizations of sound is this the opposite of that is this is this well except for this isn't visual you're talking about language data it's kind of the opposite of that it's the opposite of that except it's not direct well Actually, even a waveform is a kind of translation. It's not. It's not the sound itself. Right. You know, the the sound itself is if you you know if you inscribe like things on a wax cylinder, like literally, mm. you know, in the in the very material medium, and even then you're not capturing all of it because the material the material has limitations. So yeah, I would say that's that's the opposite. It's kind of hard to imagine. Except here's an example of how sonification is already embedded in us. Imagine taking a bottle and trying to fill it with water. What happens when it starts to get full? The sound goes up, right? You kind of know when to stop the water before it overflows. Because there's a, there's a harmonic thing that happens is like this, the air kind of lessens in the bottle. It starts to sound higher and higher, like tuk, 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 and then you know how, when to stop it. So that's like a, a really physical way of, uh, of reminding us that that's already how we are wired to listen, like to, to these changing intensities and textures and nuances of sound. So to me, sonification is, is trying to capture that and, and put it into displaying more you know, more ephemeral information, information that uh, doesn't have a sound of its own. Mm. There's no sound of a tweet, right? There's that little, or, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> that, no- that notification that tells yeah, you. Yeah, but that's a notification. That's not like <laughs> yeah. the sound of a tweet. It's, yeah, it's the sound of a notification. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, sound plays, these notifications also, like, are a whole, they're a whole system of sounds that we've now internalized, what they mean, you know, how they fit in our lives. We, we're always listening for them. Mm-hmm. If you have different sounds for, you know, an email versus a, a, a Facebook messenger versus, you know, a tweet, you know what's coming in even without looking at it. And mm-hmm. it's like it's like a whole vocabulary that we've learned. It is. Yeah, it's so interesting. And it's corporate, like the sound logo part of it and the kind of identifier of like, you know, like, yeah, I heard somebody a little while ago on on uh, public transportation and they're, they're with a friend and their front their friend ding they're like what you're on instagram you know because it, it dinged in a certain way or whatever right <laughs> like, yeah which apparently you can control them like you can't actually change them oh, yeah, yeah sure. i didn't realize that yeah. i thought they were like 
um, you know, decided. And of course, there, you know, depends on your phone and all, and all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's very interesting, this kind of little tribal uh, notification, like relationship and the like anxiety. Yeah. Like the, the extra, you know, piece of uh, of the overwhelm of all that stuff. Uh, do, do young people, do you know, if like, do, do young people have a more complex you know, relationship with sound. And I'm not talking about the whole, like, I know they hear sounds that we don't or whatever, but I just mean from video games, like for the video games example, like I look at my mm. my nephew uh, at nine years old and he would say, you know, oh, there's something behind there playing a video game. And I'd say, like, how do you know? And he'd say, because I heard a sound. And I was like, there's like 25 sounds happening right now. Like, how do you know that sound uh, is a cookie? You know, and I was just like, I'm fascinated by this you know, are we are we in a, are we in a more sound saturated media environment? Let's forget about the outside environment for a minute, like than we were before. Or I don't know. I think so. Same thing. I think so. I think it's safe to say we are in a very sound saturated, mediated environment. Hmm. And uh, and gaming gaming soundscapes actually are a great example. I wouldn't say that young people have a more complex relationship to sound because just as their vocabulary for media sound has increased, their vocabulary for understanding uh, the sound around them has decreased. You know, they can't, can they identify what bird call they're hearing? Mm. Probably not. Even though those are the local birds of their environments. I mean, I often, I often play that in class. I would say, uh, I would show some logos and say, you know, does everyone know what these logos are? Yeah. And then I would show them, I would play them a bird call and say, does anyone know what this is? Nobody knows. It's like only the most, lo you know, frequent local bird. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a really an increase in one area and a decrease right. in another area. And, and games are, they have a sonic vocabulary too. They, they really, you learn from, mm. and they are, uh, they transfer from one another. That knowledge is very transferable. So you kind of learn. Um, it may not be the same sound, but it will. It will be a very similar type of sound, and you learn that from game to game. And so then you can kind of enter and hear the different dings and notifications, and kind of have a pretty good sense of what they mean ah that makes sense because it's a whole like it's a whole semiotics <laughs> right of course yeah yeah so they've got their own kind of yeah vocabulary or yeah uh, uh within that media yeah, it's not about hearing more and like they heard something behind like most games aren't even that sophisticated in terms of 3d audio it's not that it's just they've learned the vocabulary right right right, right. and if they were to learn yeah the bird vocabulary so in the sound of the future uh listening as data and the politics of soundscape assessment, you write more recently, a digital commons approach to civic engagement has led to crowdsourcing sonic experiences, sound mapping, and at the infrastructural level, networked monitoring of important of noise levels, sorry, these rhetorical and practical developments fit within important contemporary conversations in critical data and algorithm studies, and as such require a critical excavation of underlying values and conceptions of listening. There's a lot there, and I know you have to go soon. <laughs> uh, thanks for picking I, what I hope is the longest and most, you know, roundabout sentence of this paper. I, I didn't realize there's, you know, only when someone like brings something out, it's like, wow, I could have said this in three different sentences and probably a little simpler. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we can break it down now. That's academia's, sure. you know, brilliant sure. for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, particularly, you know, my my ear goes up when we talk about yeah how how to think about sound critically, mm-hmm. um, and and of course, you know, how it crosses over into like algorithmic studies and all these other different things that we're trying to navigate when understanding like information environments uh, and what's at play. Um, so yeah, could you could you give us those uh, those plain language? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll try to, yeah. So basically, this, I mean, we're coming kind of full circle back to the beginning of this conversation, which was about uh, sound in the city and uh, ways of uh, moving forward with the tradition of acoustic ecology, but in this more, you know, critical contemporary way. So uh, one of the things that have that has become really big is um, is digital sound maps, where people can either um, contribute sounds like radio apri is one of the really big and and super i mean it's a huge archive um it's just been the most popular platform um there's probably there's sounds um it started in 2006 so you can also think of it as a literal historical archive because depending on when the sounds were uploaded that's a sound of you know that historic moment in time however What's it called? Hmm? What's it called? What's it called again? Radio Apri. A-P-R-O-R-E-E. Um, and it's like radioapri.org. However, what ends up happening is, first, it's like, when you look at it, your mind immediately thinks, oh, this is the sound of the world. Well, it's not. It's it's. There's so many silent areas, right? So it's not the sound of the world. But there are so many that it feels like it is. It feels like it's comprehensive. So there's these kind of mind tricks that our minds play when we look at a cartographic representation. And also the, the whole point of attaching a sound to a place, it's like, did the sound happen to happen in that place? Or is this the sound of that place? Those are two different things, because sound is ephemeral. And, and again, when you attach a sound to a particular location, it becomes symbolically the sound of that place. But it could have been just a sound that happened to happen in that place. And so, you know, there's just, there's nuances to these digital commons archives that um, I I want us to think about because they're very easy to ignore and forget. And then um, a lot of these get kind of incorporated into um, the sensor nets part. So some cities have employed um, monitoring frameworks. Actually, Vancouver has one for the port of Vancouver because um, the noise of the port is so huge that it is like potentially crossing bylaw regulations. And so they're required to contract a company to monitor it. You can go on a website live to check the levels of sound, like they're coming through live. But we're focusing on levels once again. We're focusing on amplitude when really it's about the, the fact that it's going all night. And I can hear it. I'm like 20 blocks away from the port and I can hear it at night. So, you know, sound doesn't stay in one place. Just because, you know, the level is such and such at the port's location doesn't mean that it doesn't also travel and impact all of these residential communities and disturb sleep and cause health problems, Mm. which we know happens so it's kind of a lazy policy response to... And it's a lazy policy, and it's also it's listening through a microphone instead of listening down by a person, and that's very, very different. You know, the microphone doesn't... Um, it doesn't function the same as a brain. You know, we don't listen 
in a that's why when you record something it's different than how you heard it because we hear with our brains and the microphone just records all the frequencies like sort of evenly the microphone doesn't really care what's important what's not important what's pleasing what's not pleasing and so when you rec when you rely on ambient um, um, kind of sensor mics you're relying on a sort of it's it's I say in that paper it's sort of it's nobody's listening position mm, right so what if we actually talked to listeners and heard from them about how it actually made them yeah how it makes them feel or what yeah. bothers you mm. yeah so you know those are logics that are really like we're seeing because the the uh, the datafying the datafication of of everything including civic life is very attractive it's it's easier it seems legitimate it seems like well this is you know the computers are doing it nobody is like imposing values but actually the value is that it's nobody's mm. value Mm, right. That, that's a great observation. Thank you so much, Milena. Thank you so much for your time and, and, and for this conversation. This was fun. And thanks for listening to this episode. Join me next time when I speak with emoji linguist Vivian Evans about what emoji adds to our digital communication toolkit and how it relates to social and emotional intelligence. Until then, stay creative and do be artists.